This is your host, Arshet Takun, with Why Indigenous Words and Ideas. And today I have a lovely guest, friend, and colleague, Ashley Gillen, and uh, have her introduce herself. Tenakwe, Ashley. Kia ora, thank you for the intro. Kia ora, Tata. Koputa ki Timonga, Korangatai ki Tawa, Komata Toa Tiwaka, Konga Maihi Tapu, Konga Tiawa Tiwi, Ko Ashley Tokuinga. Kia ora. So we're going to talk today about one of your recent articles that you wrote, but it's related to some of your bigger work that you're doing. Do you want to share some of your, I guess, like interests? Yep. Um, so I, as with many indigenous peoples, wear a lot of portai, a lot of different hats. So my recent article is based on my PhD research, which is looking at body sovereignty for fat indigenous women and what that looks like within multiple um, oppressive systems. I also am a teaching fellow in Māori studies and a researcher for um, Linda Waimari Nikura at Ngāpai o Te Maramatanga, Melinda Weber at Punawananga in the Faculty of Education, and also um, work with Jade Legrice in psychology. So I'm a bit all over the place. Awesome. Good place to be, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Nice. And so uh, I wanted to have you on just to share some of your work because I think it's really important stuff and really great and I like how you talk about it and it's gotten me to think about a lot of things as well um, in different ways in, in thinking about not only what indigenous peoples face but how indigenous knowledge can help guide us today and also help in the analysis of dealing with our, our lived experiences and so one of the things you talk about in this article Titled, titled Fat Indigenous Bodies and Body Sovereignty and Exploration of Representation. <laughs> awesome. So it's a lot in that. And we want to kind of just break down a couple of ideas and introduce it to listeners to kind of maybe think about. But to kind of begin, one of the things that you talk about in here is this idea of biopower. And I know it's a really big concept. We could do like a whole series <laughs> on just biopower. But just for the sake of just a brief, simple introduction... What are some of the ways that you understand biopower and how does it affect us? So I guess the way that I've talked about it in my work, and I'm sure other people talk about it differently, is kind of as these mechanisms um, that are used to control bodies and kind of surveil bodies. And so um, we can see that in the ways that a lot of our systems classify us, so like births, deaths, marriages, and all these different types of surveillance and kind of stemming from biopower as biopolitics which revolves around kind of populations as political biological problems and this is all linked to power obviously as well so kind of like the way life is monitored yeah or controlled or the way we think about it mm -hmm. could you maybe give an example of how biopower exists kind of like, I guess in an everyday kind of an experience. Bodies are surveilled, well, obviously my work's all around bodies, so kind of those quiet, not quite silent discourses um, and kind of hyper-medicalizations of bodies, you know, thinking around what a healthy body looks like, which healthy bodies don't have a particular look. So, you know, thinking about kind of those discourses that are perpetuated through that. You know, that makes me think that there's, all, there's always the focus on that individual. So when you're saying surveillance, that's what's making me think of, mm. right? So looking at that individual and not necessarily looking at the overall structure, right? Like most of my work is sitting down, mm. yet people might look at me and be like, oh, get healthier. Now, I do need to get a little healthier, <laughs> but I'm sitting mm. in front of a computer. Yeah. 
for most of the day? And what kind of food do I have access to in my neighborhood? Mm. Or, I don't know, is that, yeah. am I getting it right as far as the way you're framing it? No, no, absolutely. It? Like, that's the thing as well. Like, biopower shapes access as well. And so what kind of things do you have access to? And who is being hyper-surveilled is obviously structured based on these power discourses. So I talked about it in terms of, you know, obviously it's racialized, it's um, sexualized and based on gender as well. And, and in my work, I'm talking about it in terms of body size. So the more, for lack of a better term, the more intersecting isms you experience, the more surveillance or the more kind of biopolitics you're subjected to. I'll just throw in a little mm -hmm. quote that I grabbed from Google, um, <laughs> which is borrowing from Michel Foucault, mm -hmm. who, who talks about this as well, and defines it as the, the practice of modern nation states and their regulation of their subjects through, quote, an explosion of numerous and diverse techniques for achieving the subjugations mm -hmm. of bodies and the control of populations. Mm -hmm. And so when I was reading your article, maybe I, I, there was just stuff I just didn't think about. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the connection with, with I guess, thinking about the body to other things? Because you talk about like indigenous women's bodies and obviously land is a big thing, ocean's mm -hmm. a big thing. Where do you see those as, how do you see those connected? Um, well, for... I don't want to say us, but from a Māori perspective, a Māori perspective, mine, um, Papa Tūnuku is the Earth Mother. She is the first body. She is the land. She is everything, the Earth. And so that's a woman's body, and we came from that woman's body. A lot of our atua, I use the words God, ancestors, deities, very loosely, because... English can't fully translate what Māori means. But a lot of our atua are also kind of embodied with that. You know, we have tangaroa, but we also have hine moana. So thinking about how these are not just natural elements, but they're personifications of essences. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, oh, that's awesome. So in the sense that it's all interrelated. And so if we think about the way bodies are treated, in particular women's bodies... Hmm. Like, there seems to be a parallel, or at least a, a close connection to the way the earth is also treated. Like if Oh, absolutely. I remember um, one of my mentors saying to me, would we be treating earth so badly if it was Father Earth? You know, and thinking about, yeah, thinking about the ways that we are taught to treat women or female bodies, and the ways that we're taught to treat men and male bodies, what, what would that look like if it was reversed? And if it was Father Earth, so I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be having such a bad climate change right now. <laughs> <laughs> I like thinking about the way the Earth is to extract, right? Mm. So this, this logic or this idea in our modern colonial paradigm that the Earth is there to be exploited, um, to create profit, and, and therefore is to be acted on. It's a resource, whereas what you're saying or what I'm hearing you saying is from, from a Māori perspective, mm. Papa Tūnuku is the source mm. of life, not a resource to be exploited. Oh, I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> for life, um, which is great. And so kind of thinking along those lines, um, in your research, one of, the ways that you're, one of the ways that you're coming up with these ideas or, or expressing in this way is 
you're using Kopapa Māori mm -hmm. and also focusing on Manawahine. Would you mind maybe kind of briefly, right? Yeah, how would you explain or introduce the definitions to, to those ideas? Um, so Kopapa Māori is a very complex and vast Kopapa, using the same word. Um, my understanding of the word kopapa is kind of like a plan, a purpose, an approach, a philosophy, and Māori is obviously signifying that it's a Māori plan, purpose, approach. And so kopapa Māori has always existed, and it's always been a thing, um, but in recent years, like the 60s, 70s, there was a bit of a political resurgence with a language revitalisation efforts. And part of that was also the revitalization of kind of our research theories and methods and approaches. And that's sort of where Kopapa Māori had, it kind of, had its kind of coming into westernized academia. So it's kind of just a Māori way of doing things. And everybody's version of Kopapa Māori is slightly different and emphasizes slightly different things. It does have kind of foundational principles, which basically reiterate the importance of relationships the importance of these relationships, not only with each other, but with our world that we live in, and they're seeking for betterment and transformation of Māori realities. So that's kind of really brief of Kaupapa Māori. Awesome. Definitely look it up. <laughs> Absolutely. Linda Smith, Graham Smith, they're a power couple. They've written a lot on it, so I highly recommend them. And kind of mana wahine is a very complex concept, but... It's more so mana o te wahine, so the mana of um, the woman or women. And mana is kind of, I'll let you define mana. <laughs> <laughs> the way I understand mana is, um, uh, again, there's so many ways and it's contextually specific, but it generally is linked or connected to the idea of, I like the word potency, mm. um, but it's also authority, honor, prestige, mm -hmm sometimes power but it's an ancestral link mm -hmm. i guess maybe to simplify it like previous episode i talked about star wars <laughs> and the force yeah if you have if the force is strong with you you've got heaps of mana <laughs> so yeah that's yeah. one way of one way of i guess thinking about it and so the way i'm using manawahine is kind of this real recentering and repositioning Māori women and Māori women's knowledge and Māori women's stories at the forefront of what I'm doing. When talking about Māori women's bodies or Indigenous women's bodies, like not using manawahine would be really weird. So you're bringing this lens mm -hmm. to tackle these questions of body sovereignty. In, in doing so, you have confronted like the mainstream ideas that are floating around and you talk about that in this article as well, which is kind of the body positivity movement. <laughs> do you mind maybe sharing a little bit about that? Like where do you see the tension or the usefulness or the difference? The movement itself, it, where it, it came from and its purpose originally, I think is great. You know, it was this kind of feminist, fat woman movement that was about revisualizing these fat bodies particularly fat bodies of color that you don't see in mainstream media that you don't see on the internet as readily as you see the conventional thin white woman and so in that sense it was about this kind of self-acceptance movement which i think is cool that's a great co-popper 
but where it's kind of fallen short, and this is partly because it's been hijacked a lot by these conventionally thinner white women who fit certain beauty standards, is that its intersectional analysis of power structures is kind of a bit limited. So I kind of critique it a little bit and say like, you know, it's great co-pop, but loving yourself is cool. But loving yourself isn't going to change the way people treat you. It isn't going to get you jobs. It isn't going to get you access to education. It isn't going to have people treat you better or treat you for health issues. So I kind of move that to the side and talk about body sovereignty instead um, and kind of tie in some of the um, fat liberation discourses into that as well. So on that note, like you mentioned even like just kind of access mm -hmm. to healthcare, which do you mind kind of sharing a little bit about that? So in the same ways that race and ethnicity kind of restrict access for peoples of colour, fat people have their access restricted in the same ways by body size. So fat people are less likely to have access to healthcare. The healthcare that they have access to is probably poor quality and most of their kind of healthcare um, interactions with health professionals are going to be weight-centred despite going in there for other things. Like what my own um, advisor repeatedly was dislocating her knee, kept going to the doctor, kept being told to lose weight. She had a tumour in her knee, but no one would do a scan and no one would actually look into it. So there's a lot of ways that healthcare and wellness become inaccessible for fat people because of the way our systems are structured and because of the way these systems of oppression are institutionalized. So if I'm understanding right, it's like, it's like being automatically judged mm -hmm. based off of what you look like yeah. on what to treat you without actually listening to you first. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, fat people are less likely to have tests run, less likely to receive pain relief the same way that peoples of color are as well. So it's another, and then if you combine that, if you're a fat person of colour, you've got two systems working against you in healthcare. So, yeah. It's a bit pervasive. Yeah. So, but it's important to kind of be aware of these things and identify it mm. so be able to um, realise that you deserve better treatment mm. and to be treated like a human being. Yeah. Um, and also with each other to do the same thing. Mm. Um, before I get to kind of the, the last question I'm really interested in, in getting you to talk about, I probably should have done this earlier, but... You know, you're using the word fat. Yes. And I realize that that may come across maybe harsh to some mm -hmm. people in different countries or different places, depending yeah. on... Like, for me, I don't... It, uh, because I grew up, and in Spanish, I had aunties who would always tell me that I was fat. Mm. And, like, it didn't sound harsh to me until I was in English, <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but, then, but at the same time, I was, like, used to being... I don't know if you have those kind of aunties, <laughs> but... <laughs> Why do you choose to use that word? Is it and are you have you come across that as well? And trying to talk about this issue. Mm -hmm. um, funnily enough, I gave a talk um, to our medical students last week on fat bias. It's part of their obesity symposium, um, and I was asked if whether or not using the word fat was appropriate by one of the people convening it, and I sort of said. First of all, there's nothing wrong with the word fat. It's the bias that we've associated with that word. We're taught that being fat is one of the worst things you could possibly be, so therefore you'd never want to be called fat. But fat is a descriptor. Fat is just a word. It's the same as saying someone has brown hair, someone is fat. You know, it's, There's no connotations that are actually meant to be attached to it. 
And so part of the reason I use fat is about destigmatizing it and also destigmatizing um, bodies because we've been hypermedicalized. You know, obese and obesity are considered slurs in fat studies because it's about this hypermedicalization of bodies and the stratification of bodies that's based on an archaic measure. I'm going to talk shit about the BMI, an archaic measure that was based on white men many, many years ago that doesn't actually reflect anything of use for bodies. I mean, the all blacks are obese by the BMI, you know? And so what, what positive information or what valuable information do you get by labeling people as obese? So yeah, and fat is kind of one of those reclamation words as well in the community, a bit like some of the other words in like LGBTQI communities or peoples of color communities, you know, it's about reclaiming it and destigmatizing it. Awesome. Glad that I asked because we're just kind of going with the flow because I'm, uh, it's not an issue for me, but yeah. I had to no. step, step back to. Think about <laughs> oh, yeah, it. there might be something that, yeah. Oh, yeah, it took me a while to get used to using it. Being a fat person and kind of using the word fat, you can see people get visibly uncomfortable and not know what to do about it. And so it took me a little while into my um, PhD to get used to using it and being okay with using it because you've been taught for so long like that's a bad thing yeah. you should never say that word should never refer to yourself as fat because then you get the oh no you're beautiful but fatness and beauty aren't synonymous you know they're not the same thing they're separate things One of the things that I wanted you to, to share, um, because I thought it was really, uh, really super interesting and also very kind of empowering for even me to kind of read and think about, was the way you've applied Matauranga Māori or, or Māori knowledge in this contemporary reality that, you know, um, obviously it affects Māori folks, but people all over the world as well. But mm -hmm. in this case, this, this Māori story and knowledge offers solutions, mm -hmm. uh, a critique as well as solutions to how do we move towards a, a better reality mm -hmm. where we treat people as human beings, regardless mm -hmm. of size, shape, color, etc. But also in particular with the gendered components of that as well and thinking about consent and power and how body sovereignty, in a sense, also helps liberate. So, do you mind sharing about Hine Nui Te Po and, and yeah. um, what you, how you used that knowledge? So, I guess I've got to give an overview of who Hine Nui Te Po is then. Um, she is one of our uh, atua, and kind of very briefly, how the story began is Papatuanuku is our earth mother, and Ranginui is the sky father. Initially, they were connected, so there was no light between them, and their children lived between them. Their children kind of were like, this is dark and it's cramped, I want a bit more space. And so they forced Papatuanuku and Aranginui apart and brought into light Te Ao Marama, so the world of light. And one of their children, Tane, the one that separated them, was interested in combining his male element with a female element. And he was looking for a wahine to do this with. And he searched and searched and searched. And finally Papa told him, create one out of clay at Kurawaka, her pubic region. And so he created a woman out of clay and breathed life into her. This is where the saying Tihei Modi order comes from as she sneezed um, and became alive. And so they combined the female and male elements. 
and had a daughter who was Henetitama, the dawn maiden. And when Henetitama was a bit older, Tane took her as a wife, or whatever the equivalent to that was back then. And they had children and they went on. And Henetitama questioned, who was my father? Where did I come from? And finally Tane told her to go consult the house, go consult the Farinui with all the whakapapa carved into it. And she found out that Tane was her father. And the story as told as retold talks about her fleeing to Rarohinga or the underworld and becoming Hinenu Tupo, the great goddess of the night or the great woman of the night, and becoming a guardian for those who pass on to the next world. And so I talk about this story um, and I talk about Maui, who I'm sure a lot of us know is this great demigod, trickster of um, Māori, Pacifica and Polynesian whakapapa, and how Maui sought to cheat death. And the way he was going to do this was by entering Hinenui Tupo's vagina. And there's a lot of mixed messages about whether he was trying to get her pregnant, whether he was trying to reverse the birthing process, whether he was trying to come out somewhere else and kind of undo this and gain immortality. And when he was doing this, um, he looked really funny. And some of the manu, some of the birds around were laughing and thought, lol, you look a bit, what, what's going on here? Hinenui Tupo woke up realized what was going on and crushed Maui with the obsidian teeth in her vagina. And some Māori academics talk about him becoming the first menstruation or the first ikura. Some of them talk about him um, injuring Henenui Tupo and this is where the toto or the blood came from. So there's a lot of mixed kind of conversations around that. And so I kind of use those two examples as body sovereignty. And so Henenui Tupo choosing on her own accord to leave Tane, to leave the situation that she did not consent to or wasn't informed consent because she didn't know who Tane was. So she left that situation and I talk about that as body sovereignty and her killing Maui as a different type of body sovereignty for her in for him entering her without consent. Yeah. Sorry, that was like a lot of information in a very short time. But. Yeah, he brilliantly done. You're showing how like this is in these ancient stories mm. and and kind of embedded within that. One of the, the things that you also talk about with Hinanui Tepo is the like the depictions of her, and mm -hmm. this is something I find everywhere mm. I've been, at least in in our modern era. Yeah. When people say the mm. bodies of the gods or the goddesses mm. or whatever, or even in joking, like mm. it's usually this modern aesthetic of beauty. Mm. Mm. Um, and I remember I saw a meme that was kind of like a joking meme, and it showed like the carving of Venus, the, mm. the deity in Northern Europe, mm. and, and it's very round, yeah. um, larger female body, mm -hmm. and the joke was like, oh, and if somebody asked you, body of a goddess this is what i'm going to say yes i do yeah and it was kind of a joke but i was just like well wait a minute like you know when i read yours i was like maybe you mm -hmm. know it shouldn't be that funny because if we if we're aware mm. of how the depictions of beauty are created by people mm. and in this current era like maybe that's not what we thought of as far as the body mm. of a deity in the past and thinking about manna mm. Like, mana was also associated with large people. Like, mm. if you were larger, you, either because of strength, like, mm. say, a warrior or something, or a good farm worker, yeah. but also it meant, like, wealth. Like, mana meant you could 
yeah reproduce you had you know you had food to eat and so you kind of talk mm-hmm. about this as well like how do you envision Hinanui mm-hmm. Tepo and maybe how mm-hmm. have you seen her depicted in art today so I kind of talk a lot about these like retellings and representations of Hinanui and Māori woman and kind of who is retelling our narratives and who is translating them too into English and so often Hinanui is translated as the goddess of death but that's not quite right you know like she's a guardian she looks after us she takes care of us and you know Hine signifies female essence Tepua is the night and Nui is one of the words that I toy around with a little bit in this work I was always taught Nui means big and then I or you know great and stuff and then I kind of looked into a bit further and Nui means kind of you know it could mean fat and it could mean bountiful and plentiful and stuff and even the word for fat in Māori does mean those things as well so I kind of toyed with the idea of maybe Nui Tupo is not only great in her mana and in her power and her feminine essence but also in her size in her body size and so I talk about that and kind of the way that these retellings often omit certain aspects of our lives do you think the artistic representations of your experience give room for um, in nui tepo being nui, being mm. bigger? Uh, some of them kind of do, or some of them, like, kind of, you can tell that it's not, she's not depicted as, like, a normal-sized person, whatever that looks like, like a people-sized person, rather than, like, a goddess or an atua-sized person. I've commissioned work myself to get hini nui tepo drawn emphasized on the nui and it's beautiful and it's bountiful um, I've seen kind of different depictions of her but none that kind of emphasize the nui-ness of her in my eyes hopefully I can find some somewhere if anyone knows if anyone's seen a hini nui emphasize emphasis on the nui like you know let me know yeah oh I think it's great just kind of rethinking um, the, the way we think about all those things probably another thing that should have gone at the beginning but you know we do things in different uh operations of time of course mm-hmm. right but um you know we were talking very openly you know we're mm. we're good friends and colleagues and uh but i know that some of these topics you know may be sensitive sensitive um and uh or tapu mm. uh and so you know i'll probably end up putting the e on this one and the <laughs> other one but because they don't have a t but really it should just be the <laughs> the the tapu one mm. like where we're talking about it openly because mm. we have a relationship mm. we we've talked about these things we're we're able to do that because mm. who we are here it's about the va <laughs> you're right and and we're trying to just kind of make those in the va listening mm. aware of that as well um, I work a lot with Tongans and so there's mm. the fuck up apa right mm. we mm. usually don't talk about the stuff with people the opposite sex particularly mm. people like that are siblings. Um, and so we are talking mm. about it in a tara noa, emphasis mm. on noa, yeah. meaning that we've neutralized the tapu or the restriction around the mana of mm. this topic so we can talk about it. So just be mindful of that, whereas <laughs> too late you've already listened to it, <laughs> but um, in retrospect, right, we did mm. uh, walk backwards into the future, so that's why it's at exactly. the end. <laughs>
Exactly. <laughs> to try to cover. We're re-indigenizing the corded <laughs> <That's all. laughs> um, and the way we operate within time in that. So that's mm. that's awesome. Um, and thinking also about just to kind of wrap it up, the you know you're emphasizing you know the, the role of body sovereignty. And so what I'm hearing from you is, and from what I've read as well, is these these ways of understanding uh, the important relationships that already exist with with wahine, with women, but remembering that and, mm. and maybe uh, remembering the mana that comes from that mm. uh, in our relationships and, you know, consent being a big thing mm. in a variety of arenas in our current reality, um, but also representations and reinterpreting. Mm. And as you're talking about that, again, in the in the line of things that are tapu outside of our kōrero here, even, uh, I remember doing research on the way menstrual blood was interpreted by mm. like early uh, Western missionaries, for example. And there's this mm. whole big literature in early anthropology on pollution, right? Mm-hmm. And it's because they were using their bias of how they had come to relate to women and women's mm. bodies onto indigenous peoples who saw it very differently. Oh, absolutely. And then thinking about like the way, the role that you know, the like instead of being pollution, which is how it was mm. being interpreted, it was actually potency, it was power, mm. it was manna. And there's so many traditions across the Moana from, mm. from the Papuas to, to Tonga and everywhere else anciently and some still mm. practice today that honor that potency during menstruation mm. period. Um, and that rather than being what people have misinterpreted, mm. many were closer to the gods or the Atswa, for lack of better words, yeah. right? Absolutely. In a sense, closer to creation, closer to life, and mm. whereas when you talk about Maui and the story of the bow, like it made me think as well, like in in that that possibly being you know the mm. first menstrual blood mm. in, in that story is one interpretation. You know that's also the site. You know the it's also the birth canal, right? It's yeah. also the site of life, which also comes with mm. the waters of the embryonic sac and also blood mm. and the placenta. Yeah, and so. In a sense, there is that that dual, both mm. the potential of life and death in mm. in blood itself, and not one or the other, but that women or wahine embody both of those. Both of those. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I touched on it a little bit in this paper, but Ngahuya Murphy is a Māori um, academic, oh, officially Dr. Ngahuya now. She's written a lot around uh, Tiawa Atua, as she calls it, you know, um, or ikura, like menstruation, menstrual blood, and kind of the processes of what we once did and how it was a tapu time for us because we had so much mana and, you know, we were um, looked after, we were resting, you know, kind of what our processes were. And one of them was giving back the first menstruation when you got your ikura, to Papa Tonuku and bearing it and so you know really thinking about how we handled these situations and how kind of I talk about it in here how these colonial retellings represent Hinenuetapu and represent ikura time as you know dirty and unclean and in these negative lights when the reality is it's a normal process it's something that we acknowledge that we have and we experience and that is from our whakapapa you know, when you look at it, Hini no support is the one that this all came from. So that links us to her. Awesome. Question, what is considered normal and reclaim what actually is normal? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Because I talk about that a little bit in here too, around like 
this concept of body sovereignty and stuff and around like authority and I talk about this concept that I'm floating around of mana tinana you know thinking about it in relation to like mana whenua as people of our land who look after it and stuff and so that's kind of how I see our body sovereignty is this mana tinana this we have the authority and we have the guardianship of it and so how are we able to enact that in a world of systemic oppression that likes to restrict our access to things yeah i always have to bring it back to access sorry i had to get that in there yeah no that's that's what it's all about the point is like we don't have access to things based on these colonial systems of oppression and how can we rethink that and how can we challenge that with our own indigenous epistemologies and kaupapa and ideas don't want to follow that. Kia ora, Ashley. Sibalak Mantios. Thank you. Appreciate you sharing your knowledge and time. No, kia ora. Thank you for having me. Namahi.